Here at Doxaday Bloom, we are excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope that you enjoy today's message. Trees are incredible. Trees actually annually remove about a third of the fossil fuels in our atmosphere. They're able to absorb pollutants and toxins and actually expel oxygen. Isn't that incredible? Trees absorb carbon dioxide. They do something incredible with that. And then on the other side of that process, there's oxygen that you and I use to live, to survive. All the more in bigger urban cities, we see this movement of companies and housing buildings really prioritizing the planting of parks and trees and plants because of this life-giving nature that they have, this exchange ability that trees have in producing life-giving oxygen. Now, for me, that actually so beautifully illustrates the work that Jesus came to do for you and me. I want to ask you to, for a moment, just quickly consider how did you grow up regarding the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus's life, death and resurrection? Did you perhaps grow up with a story where you were told that, you know, Jesus died for all your sins on the cross so that one day you could be with him in heaven? Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that statement, but a lot of the times, if that's the gospel that we grow up with, you know, that Jesus, well, he had to die for my sin, but luckily, because of that, I get to be with him one day. Oftentimes, if that's the gospel that we grow up with, it kind of leaves us with little hope for the here and now. Little hope for today. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that statement, but if that is my only reference when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, that luckily I am forgiven and one day I will be with him in heaven, that doesn't necessarily mean anything for me here today. If my hope is only for one day, for eternity, where does that leave you and me? Now, with this series, the Great Exchange, we're exploring what exactly it means for you and me today. The fact that Jesus came thousands of years ago. He lived as an ordinary man. He was obedient to God. He died a death on a cross, but he was resurrected and also ascended to a new life. Last week, we explored the topic of how that work, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, it makes an exchange in our own lives. It exchanges guilt for grace. It means I'm no longer guilty or condemned in God's sight, but there's grace available for me. And today we want to continue exploring the idea of the great exchange. What does it mean for me here and now? What does it mean for me today with the, the mountains that I'm facing, the things I'm uncertain of, the, the troubles or the pressures that I'm facing? What does the life, death and resurrection of Jesus mean for me here and now? And the exchange that we want to explore today is this, the exchange of our shame for righteousness. I have a friend and um, this close friend of mine, she actually works at a local primary school in our city. 
And the other day she mentioned to me that she never actually realized how skillful small children can become at lying, you know, once they realize they're in trouble. She mentioned she never knew that until she actually started working with small kids on a day-to-day basis. Now, we all know that expression on a small kid's face, that sense of panic when their eyes get big, they maybe blush a little bit, but that that moment where small children realize that they're in trouble. Maybe they've done something they shouldn't have done, or maybe they took something from a friend that doesn't belong to them. Maybe you and me, myself, definitely, I can recall lots of moments as a kid where I realized shucks, this thing that I just did, I should not have done that, where my eyes went all wide and I started thinking, what are my parents going to say or do when they find out about this thing? And what happens? What do we see in small kids? What do we see in ourselves? We see a sense of guilt coming kind of to rest on our shoulders. Now, as adults, we actually become a little bit better at, you know, kind of masking that feeling of guilt or shame. We learn certain coping mechanisms. We learn ways to try and hide that feeling, oftentimes failing. But you know the problem with our undealt with sense of guilt? It eventually spills over and leads us into a sense of shame. Now, guilt and shame, although similar, They're actually two completely different concepts. What do I mean by that? So when I have a feeling of guilt, I feel guilty about something or a sense of guilt, that normally happens whenever I did something wrong. I did something I should not have done and therefore I feel guilty. But shame, on the other hand, shame actually takes it one step further and one layer deeper where I no longer only feel guilty or bad or wrong because of the things that I have done, but I start adopting those things as my identity. So I did not only do something bad, I am bad. I did not only do something wrong, I am wrong. We adopt a kind of new identity where I move from being guilty to where I'm actually filled with shame. Shame takes it one step further and one level deeper. Shame is this permanent state of wrongness where I assume that wrongness or that bad kind of nature as my identifier. And we actually see the very first expressions of guilt and shame all the way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. I want to read you a scripture in Genesis 2 verse 25. This is right after God made Adam and Eve. And it says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Isn't that incredible? Think about this. The the original state of our being, the original state that God had in mind for you and for me was one of zero shame. No guilt, no shame whatsoever. But as most of us would know, the story doesn't end there. Let's read from Genesis 3 verse 6 to 7. It says, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. This is where the serpent deceives her and tells her, you'll be like God if you eat the fruit 
which was a lie because remember, they were already like God. They were the closest thing in creation resembling God himself. So she took the fruit, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And this is where I want to get at. It says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. For the first time in human existence, the feeling, the sense, the emotion, the identity of shame suddenly came and rested on humanity's shoulders. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. It's in that moment where we see the very first expression of guilt. Adam and Eve felt guilty of this wrong thing that they had done. So what do they do? They cover themselves. They gather a few leaves and they make clothing out of that too, to hide the wrong thing that they had done. It says in verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, I love that, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from him. They hid themselves from God who was in the garden looking for them. And this is where we kind of see the first expression of shame take its full effect. So no longer did they just feel guilty about what they had done, their nakedness, and they tried to cover themselves. But shame, taking it one step further and one level deeper, actually made them want to hide from the Father who created them and who loves them. Most of us would know that story. Most of us grow up with that story in church, in Sunday school, or wherever setting you might find yourself. We grow up with the story about how Adam and Eve were wrong. They sinned against God. And it's because of them that we have all these struggles and issues and problems that we are facing. It's because of their disobedience that we struggle with guilt and shame. But, thank goodness, there's a but, there's a big but in this story. Thank God for the good news of his son, Jesus. This is where the good news, friends, of Jesus sets us free. You see, his life, his death and his resurrection not only brings about the forgiveness of the wrong things that you and I may have done, but it actually exchanges that sense of wrongness, that sense of guilt, that sense of shame, which has now become our primary identifier because of the problem of sin, his life, his death, and his resurrection exchanges our sin for his righteousness. That's good news for you and me. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says the following, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't it interesting that this verse doesn't say, so that in him we might be forgiven? which is also true, but Paul, the writer, he's making an even more important point. He's making a point in saying, not only are we forgiven for the wrong things that we do, not only are we forgiven for the things that we've done that we shouldn't have done, but we are actually given God's own righteousness for us. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. But we don't always feel like that, right? 
I know a lot of you might be thinking, sure, Aiden, I know that. I know Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Oftentimes we walk around with this kind of intellectual understanding of the forgiveness of God. But a lot of times in our hearts, we don't feel righteous. It doesn't always feel like that exchange has happened. It doesn't always feel like God really, truly accepts me, loves me and bestows his righteousness upon me. It's almost as if we do life and walk around with this veil covering our faces, the separation between us and God. And I'm using the word veil for a very specific reason because a veil is actually the perfect illustration about what happens when this understand, this intellectual understanding, but the lack of the experience of that in my heart, when that keeps me away from God. We read a lot throughout the Old Testament, but especially in Exodus, about the construction of the tabernacle or the temple. This was the place that God had his uh, people build so that his presence could go and dwell in that place. We read about rules and rituals and a lot of design things uh, that entailed the building of this temple so that God's presence could go and live inside this temple. But there was one very specific and very important design element of the temple where God's presence would live. And it was this, a veil. Inside the temple, inside the sanctuary, inside the place that is the most holy place of all, the place where God himself would make his presence dwell, there was a veil that separated that most holy place and the rest of the temple. And there was only one man, only one individual that was actually allowed to enter beyond that veil to actually go into the most holy and incredible and wonderful presence of God. And that was the high priest. And he couldn't just stroll into that place nonchalantly and be like, what's up, God? It's me, the priest here to confess the people's sin and all of that. No, they had to do rituals and blood offerings and sacrifices. And he had to make sure that there was nothing in him of iniquity at all. Because if there was anything, he would drop dead in God's presence pretty scary, right? I don't know if I would volunteer myself for that job necessarily, but there was a veil that separated God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And the only way for man to be able to even get close to the presence of God was through death, through someone or something, a sacrificial lamb giving up his life, dying and taking upon the sins of the people. All throughout scripture, that word veil or that design element in the temple of God is used to illustrate distance. It's used to illustrate this issue of God's holiness and man's sinfulness that can't be reconciled. And that's where the good news becomes even better in Matthew 27, verse 50 to 51, we read the following. 
Then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit. This is the moment on the cross where Jesus actually dies. He takes on the full wrath and punishment and the outpouring of God's anger regarding sin and pain and shame and all those things. He takes that upon himself and he dies. But verse 51, this is the one of the most important pieces of scripture I think we'll ever read. It says, at that moment, at that very moment where Jesus said it's finished and he died and he breathed his last breath, at that moment, the curtain or the veil in the sanctuary of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It was so violent. Scripture records earthquakes and rocks splitting apart at that moment. This is a monumental moment in history, friends. This is huge because the moment Jesus died elsewhere in God's temple where his most holy presence was supposed to dwell, where the veil separated God's holiness and man's sinfulness, at that very moment, that separation was removed. It was forever destroyed. Now, just for interest's sake, this was not a bedsheet type of veil, all right? This was not a, a flimsy piece of cloth, you know, that you and I might be thinking of. No, the veil used in the temple, in the innermost sanctuary where God's presence would dwell was about nine centimeters thick. I mean, that's a lot. That, that's really You'll have to be like a strong man to uh, tear through that thing. And it was about 18 meters in length. That is an incredible piece of construction. That is not something that would just tear by itself. That is not something that would just kind of fall apart naturally. No, that moment where the veil that separated God's presence, His holiness, everything of who He is and the rest of creation, the moment that veil was torn, friend, that was God making a statement. That was the God of the universe saying, my son, my daughter, listen up. That which has separated us up until now, it is removed. Your shame, it is removed. Your guilt, it is removed. Your sin, it is removed. Whatever has kept you up until this point from being able to freely and boldly and comfortably and intimately run into my presence, whatever has kept you from that up until this point is dealt with forever, for all eternity. He exchanged his own righteousness for your shame and for my shame. No longer does shame identify me, but his righteousness identifies me. No longer does my permanent sense of being wrong identify me. No, his righteousness identifies me. What does that mean for you and me in the here and now today? It means this, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says it so beautifully from verse 19. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, the fact that Jesus has now become the perfect, ultimate, best high priest that there ever was, the fact that he was the one who not only performed the sacrifice to get us into God's presence, but he was the one who sacrificed himself. He became the priest 
and the offering. That has never happened before. And what that means for you and me here and now is this. Brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. That's what it means for you and me in the here and now. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain, past the veil, past everything that has kept us from him up until this point into the most holy place. The place that was reserved for the one high priest once a year is now freely available at any moment, at any place for anyone. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. Note, it doesn't say enter God's presence like a worm. It doesn't say enter God's presence with shame and guilt and just please God, please don't strike me or, you know, be angry with me. No, it says run. It says boldly go, go into your father's presence. Why? Because you belong there. Why? Because Jesus, the son has taken care of everything that needed to be taken care of so that that is possible for you and me. This verse concludes by saying, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Friend, there's no reason for us to feel ashamed anymore. What that means for us in the here and now, it's this, when shame comes knocking and shame says you are what you've done, then righteousness gets to say, I'm not what I've done. I am what Christ has done on my behalf. When guilt comes knocking, okay, guilt no longer has a foot to stand on. When, when the enemy comes and he lies and he tries to steal or to corrupt or to destroy you or whatever the case may be, righteousness has the final say. Righteousness in me has the ability to say, I belong to Jesus. I belong to my father and I am everything he tells me I am. Isaiah 61 records the prophecy of Jesus' coming and what his life would mean for all of us. But there's a promise for you and me in this passage too. I wanna read us verse three um, of, of Isaiah 61. It says, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then listen to this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Like trees have this incredible exchange ability where they actually absorb toxins and pollution and provide oxygen on the other side of that. Jesus did something way, way better and so much bigger. He absorbed onto himself all of our guilt, all of our pain and all of our shame so that we could be called oaks of righteousness. Oak trees are known for being strong. Oak trees are known for being rooted, established and secure. 
oak trees are known for withstanding hardship, storm, predators, whatever the case may be. Oak trees have these incredibly large, massive, deep roots that run deep into the earth where they can find water and nutrients. That's the hope today, here and now, for you and me, friend. It's not only a hope of one day I'll be with Jesus. One day things will be made right. One day things will be made new. No, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus means the forgiveness of my sins, yes, but it means that I am declared righteous. It means that I become an oak of righteousness in society where my roots run deep into Jesus as I grow in my faith in Him so that I can withstand anything until that day when I get to see Him face to face. The roots of our own righteousness found in Jesus Christ, they will also be expansive and secure and they will also be able to withstand any attack that the predator or our enemy might launch at you and me. That's the hope for you and me here today. That is truly the great exchange. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that your life, your death, and your resurrection. It's not only just a hope for one day. It's not only just forgiveness for my sin. It's not only just that. It is so much more. It is the privilege of taking part in that great exchange where I am able to exchange my shame for your righteousness. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.